welcome to the Just Space podcast, where we aim to recognize and elevate the collective voices, experiences, and knowledge to co-produce spaces that physically embody just and inclusive values. We're your co-hosts, Emil Barre, Dr. Eka Permanasari, and Dr. Dion Nostikasari. Our guest today is Dr. Nicole Foster, an assistant professor of sustainable community development at Northland College in Ashland, Wisconsin. Her research explores how art, culture, and technology can build inclusive and just communities and economies. Nicole is a board member for Create Wisconsin and has published in journals such as the Journal of Planning, Education, and Research, Sustainable Cities and Society, and urban studies. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you, it's great to be here. You have a background in theater and some of your work also centers on how arts may play a role in building inclusive communities. First of all, how did you go or come into planning from a theater background? Right, I often say that I'm an accidental planner. I, when I started my college studies uh, with university, I never even heard of planning, urban planning. And so my major was theater. I was at New York University and thought I wanted to be a director. And that was my path. And I was a company manager for an off-Broadway theater company. And through that experience, and also at NYU, I did a community-based theater class. And I started working with kids. And then um, after I graduated, I was working up in the Bronx as a teaching artist, as a theater teaching artist. And I soon realized that actually working in communities, with communities, um, and thinking more of theater as a tool, more so than an end of itself, was much more important to me. Um, I mean, I love theater. And I think, um, you know, looking back, there are so many connections between, you know, creating theater and creating communities. It's so collective and collaborative. You're working with all kinds of people, people you don't necessarily agree with, right? There's a lot of drama and drama, um, but so much of it is trust and building trust. You know, you're going on stage, you need someone to give you your cue or to have your prop and you need people backstage and on stage um, and all kinds of talents, you know, from organizing to, you know, creativity to building sets um, and the storytelling. And so, that's the piece that I loved. I loved working with other people and co-creating stories and co-creating experiences. Um, but what I realized when I was so working in the Bronx, working with these kids, and I say kids, I mean, I was only 22, 23, and I was you know, facilitating theater workshops for 17, 18 year olds. So only a few years younger. And what I realized, right, because I was trained as an actor, trained as a director, I knew nothing about why the Bronx was the Bronx. Right, so here I am working with folks from totally different um, life experiences. I'm coming, you know, from a place of privilege, right? I had a solid middle-class upbringing, suburban upbringing. I graduated from NYU. I mean, this is, you know, I have a lot of privilege. And here I am working with these communities. And I thought, you know, I actually part of me felt like it was really unethical, actually, not knowing how this community came to be, not really knowing the words of kind of economic restructuring, institutional racism, neoliberalism was not part of my vocabulary at the time. And so I did that for a year and I loved it, but I felt like I need to go back to school. I need to have a lot more experiences, you know, to do this well, to do this ethically. Um, and so um, that's what I did. So I went to, back to graduate school and took sociology classes and urban anthropology and um, political science and feminist theory and critical race theory and cultural studies. And that just, you know, kind of opened up a whole new world for me and made me think about theater and think about art, obviously, in a much more critical way. And yes, that just kind of put me on a different path. And so then it was, okay, how does theater and art and creativity which I do think is incredibly empowering and yeah, it's, it's an incredibly empowering tool. How to use that, use that well um, to build more inclusive, resilient, uh, just communities. So yeah, that just put me on a different path and kind of found planning, which I thought, you know, this is actually everything that I love. I love communities and, you know, places and the creativity and planning being such an interdisciplinary field. Um, seem to be a great place to explore those questions and, and to do that kind of work. So that's 
a really, really <laughs> fascinating journey. And so you kind of touch on on how recognizing your privilege and ethical considerations and in working with communities has led you to your journey kind of into planning and practices. So how has that, you know, shaped you in understanding how in your practice, how we can as a society produce more just spaces? I'll give a little bit of context, just kind of the way in which kind of art and culture is now kind of thought about within the planning field. I think this is really important to this question. You know, of course, for a long time, right, arts have been, when you think about festivals, for example, often they're very community-driven, community-based, often quite political and resistant, right? So there's a long history of kind of arts, culture, and community building. But of course, in the 90s, right, so thinking um, largely coming out of the UK and Australia, there was this recognition that art and culture revitalized communities, right? There's an economic development piece of it. And it was kind of seen as this panacea, or it wasn't, no, I mean, it wasn't panacea, right? It was seen as this answer to um, depressed communities and marginalized communities, economically disadvantaged communities. Um, but it was, you know, economic development, but it was culture. So it was inclusive, it was automatically, you know, um, had the social value and cultural value. But as we know, um, there's you know a lot of kind of downsides to kind of culture-led development revitalization. Um, you know we see a lot of gentrification and displacement. The arts can be quite exclusionary. Uh, we can talk about that more in a bit. But because of that, because of this recognition of the value of art and culture for economic development, community development. All of a sudden, artists were in high demand to work with communities. And so there's all this grant money. Say, so, okay, let's get an artist in residence. We're going to plot them in this community. And they're just going to somehow magically do cool stuff with community members. Um, and so there's a lot of kind of parachuting into these communities. And sometimes those projects can leave communities worse, right? Because an artist can come in, they don't know anything about that community, um, there's no relationships. And so what they try to do just doesn't resonate or actually what they do is really successful, but then there's no funding to carry that through. So recognizing those, those risks, right? Um, anytime that, that I do kind of arts-based community work, it first and foremost is about building relationships, right? Meeting people, what's important, um, hearing people's stories in their spaces, right? Finding those community spaces, finding those, the, the places and, um, the experiences that are important to them. That's not to say that, I think there is oftentimes value with kind of an, an artist or kind of a creative-based practitioner just coming with an outside perspective, because sometimes communities can be quite fraught and actually there's a lot of internal divisions and having kind of a, an outside of a, a third party come in to you know, be able to facilitate different kinds of conversations that can be quite useful, but you don't know that until you get to know what's going on on the ground. It, you know, anytime you're doing any kind of community-based work, it's about, yes, spending time, building relationships, building trust. And that can take years, actually, right? Um, so depending on, you know, um, yeah, your identity, your background, the, the context that you're working with, right? So here in northern Wisconsin, right, we have, um, it's a really interesting, I mean, it's, it's overwhelmingly white, but of of course, you know, we have a long-standing, you know, and still very strong Anishinaabe, Ojibwe communities here. We have four reservations within, I think, 150 miles of, of Ashland, right? So there is a large and incredibly important and vital Native American presence in this community. But of course, like all areas in the U.S. and around the world, right, that kind of colonialist history, that there is of trauma, there's trauma that's not been addressed um, and, and conflict and divisions um, between groups, community groups. And so I'm not from here. So I, this is my third year and I'm, you know, I'm still trying to wrap my head around and understand that history, the history that gets told and the history that does it, that's gotten buried, right? So it's really, you know, it's a, sometimes it takes years. It's, it's still taking me years to fully understand those divisions, that trauma, and then how best can I work with different community members and community groups? And again, it's, it's the other piece of it of this kind of work. It's not for me to decide. And maybe oftentimes I am not 
the best person to work on a project. Um, and my role perhaps is facilitation or no role at all, right? So I think understanding and, and listening to communities, they know best, they know what they need. And this is what I tell my students all the time, like they're the experts, not you. You think you know what they need, but you don't. And it's, you know, how, how to build those relationships to then be invited in when it makes sense, you know, when you can add value to a project. Yeah, again, I think as an academic, I mean, you know, all of us, you know, in this conversation today, as academics, we're automatically privileged, right? That we have certain, that education, certain expertise. And so how do we use that? How do we use that expertise and then our resources to further community desires and goals and projects? And, you know, how can we use our university connections and resources to further, you know, what communities need and what they want? So thinking about all of our work, whether it's research and teaching, of having impact. And that's where I, that's where I start. With any kind of project, it's you know, working with communities. What do you want to achieve? What's the impact that you want to have? Okay, and then we're going to build a project around that. You mentioned how, um, how you came to the realization that you didn't know anything about why the Bronx was the Bronx prior to going back to school. So during the time that you were pursuing additional schooling, how has your theater community and background in theater informed your understanding of place in the built environment? Looking back now, there's so many connections when we think about, again, the it's, it's collaborative, it's collective, any kind of community building project. It takes all kinds of, of talents and skill sets and experiences to do that well. So the more diverse, the better in terms of that expertise. And then, you know, from a set kind of placemaking, you know, thinking about the, you know, thinking about streets and lots and buildings and spaces. How do you create the context for the kinds of interactions that you want to have, right? So if you're trying to create a space to enable people to connect and to communicate and share experiences and share stories, that certainly does kind of feed into kind of how we think about public spaces and community spaces of, of building. Yeah, I mean, we hear this in kind of the planning literature, kind of outdoor living rooms, but there is some truth to that, you know, creating spaces where people feel comfortable and, and welcome and invited. I will say though, with you know, kind of going back to this now kind of professionalization of theater and art in the planning world, you know, when this term of creative placemaking came out, right, in the early kind of 2010 with that white paper, um, you know, there's some, you know, certainly really interesting and productive ideas in thinking about, I mean, the, the good thing about that creative placemaking movement was that, you know, at its heart, philosophically, it was community-centered. So unlike like the creative cities or the creative class or creative economy kind of policy making that was really focused on economic development, creative placemaking was supposed to be community-driven, right? Um, and it was supposed to, you know, create that social and cultural impact and also revitalize communities. The child, the problem is kind of going back to the problems of a lot of times artists kind of get thrown into projects is that often the kinds of places that were being developed were not necessarily that inclusive, right? And so we see a lot of creative placemaking projects looking a lot alike. Um, kind of new urbanism, you know, like pop-up shops, the whole kind of DIY urbanism. There's a particular aesthetic, you know, of kind of pop-up yoga studios and community gardens and um, cupcakeries. And, you know, I mean, there's a particular aesthetic, a particular that are tied to particular consumption practices, which are often tied to particular kinds of identities. And I, and I think the field is still wrestling with that. Like how do, how do we really do inclusive creative placemaking? And a lot of folks are shifting away from that phrase towards placekeeping, for example. Like how do you want to unearth and really understand communities in place and you know what has been buried or erased or marginalized or silenced and, and how do you help to unearth that and and, um, and reclaim and reappropriate those spaces you know using different kinds of aesthetics um, that are that are community driven and so you know and that's again really challenging when we think too about um, you know arts and and cultural fields are often quite elitist, right? There's that kind of high cultural capital. And so it's, you know, how do you kind of support and build and identify community-based artists, artists that are from particular communities? I mean, everyone is, I mean, maybe even kind of shifting away from the term artist, like everyone is creative, 
was like, how do you facilitate and create opportunities for people to express themselves in creative ways? And, you know, I think that's, that's just been a challenge in, in this field is oftentimes you have experts coming in to facilitate processes, but there's, you know, they will have their own biases and their own kind of aesthetic assumptions that are like, and often so tied to identity. So I think it's, you know, bridging that kind of understanding from planning and, you know, graduate school and also just working with communities and also wrestling, I think, with the contradictions and tensions that are inherent to kind of arts rates practice. But on the, so that's the kind of the critique, but on the flip side, I think there's, you know, there's something, I think art and creativity, especially when it's, when it's coming, you know, being able to create spaces for people to express themselves in new ways, it is, it can be quite empowering and it can, to be able to communicate something or express something in a different kind of way, it just opens you up to possibilities. And I think for folks to rethink their communities in a new way and to, to be imaginative and to, to be able to dream like what's possible, arts-based methodologies and practices really help to do that and, and think about your space in a, in a new and different way. So I think, you know, theater and art as a tool in planning process and placemaking, placekeeping, you know, it can be used for, for good or bad, right? But I think it is, again, going back to thinking about it as this empowering tool. It's just really, I think it's important, like who is facilitating that process? Who's at the table? Who's, you know, organizing that project and just making sure that's, a, that's a inclusive and kind of that the power dynamics are as flattened as possible. Um, to enable community members to really drive that process. So there's a really, you know, dynamic processes that happens in what you just described, right? This process of coming together, reclaiming space, and alternatively thinking about how those can become. And, you know, I think that's interesting in terms of, you know, how the intersections between the idea, and I, you, I think you've touched this on some other um, works in terms of the idea of the rights of the city and intersections with the way people can come together around projects and ideas and collective values. How does this look like in our everyday lives? So it's interesting, right? So I, again, not knowing this in, in the beginning of my theater, academic, professional journey, but, you know, Lefebvre, who, you know, is often sort of is seen as kind of coining that phrase of right to the city, um, you know, he was very close with Yi Dubois, you know, in terms of a situationist, and so the situationist is like 1950s and 60s in Paris and doing all these really disruptive things in the streets, theater, I forget what the, kind of the, the phrase of it, but, um, Yes, it was kind of these disruptive, creative, radical, artistic practices that try to jolt people out of, kind of the complacency of the everyday life, of kind of you know, the ways in which capitalism was dominating their everyday lives. And so we still see that, right? We still see kind of arts and creativity being used in kind of disruptive, whether it's street art and graffiti, flash mobs, um, I mean, all kinds of practices, um, people who you know, yarn bombing, you know, um, building their own kind of skate ramps on, you know, in a, a vacant lot, right? So people are constantly reappropriating spaces, you know, for their own uses, right? And this is precisely what, what, what I would argue is what Lefebvre was really focusing on is, you know, reappropriating urban spaces for use value, for collective use, right? So for leisure, for play, for other things besides you know, economic, you know, capitalism, right, and market-based development, and so he, he argued, like, that's the source, like, if we want to think about, you know, transitioning to this other world, right, what, what else, this, what else is possible that actually, you know, yes, the kind of globalization, urbanism is, you know, kind of inextricably, seemingly inextricably tied to capitalism, and we see the ways in which capitalism is, like, this you know, kind of drawing up, you know, David Harvey picked up on this, but, you know, become land and real estate and, and you know, urban development becomes another circuit of capitalism, right, to help facilitate capitalist growth. But Lefebvre says, yes, that's indeed happening. However, we see all this other stuff happening in everyday life, right, that we see people constantly challenging that and constantly using spaces in ways that were unintended by the planners and the developers. And it's like, if, if we can 
you know, support that, cultivate that, build that. Like these are the cracks in capitalism that can be broken open to show a different way of life, more collective, more collaborative. And so I, and I love, I mean, I, and I think that's such a, a tie-in to kind of arts-based work because so often it is really grassroots, right? And so my, you know, my dissertation was, you know, working with um, a group of people in Fort Worth, Texas. It was um, an art teacher from the high school, local business people, a person who had very precarious housing, was living in a shelter on the end of the streets, artists, kids, you know, it was a really interesting group of people who didn't always agree for sure. Um, but they were tired of, you know, they, their neighborhood had this commercial core that, you know, the planning department had done this massive, you know, a plan for it, master plan, but then the, you know, the global financial crisis hit and everything stopped and nothing happened. So you have this, this street of vacant buildings that people, you know, were, you know, doing maybe not so great things in, drag racing down the street, wasn't safe. And they said, okay, well, let's do something about it. And so they did. And I was, this was the time of kind of this notion of DIY urbanism was kind of gaining speed. And I found it really interesting, you know, that it was, you know, residents kind of just taking over spaces and doing things without official authorization. And, you know, what did that mean politically? What did that mean for kind of community organizing? Did this lead to more just outcomes or did it lead to kind of, you know, gentrification, displacement? And so I worked with this group for years, right? It was kind of a three-year project, cleaning the streets, painting buildings, you know, hosting, you know, farmers markets and artisan markets and really tracking the, the relationships that, that grew out of that, the values that were kind of circulating through these projects. And what was amazing is, yeah, I mean, it was, there were some folks involved who were very much, you know, motivated from a social justice perspective, but then there were folks who wanted to gentrify the heck out of that neighborhood, right? Get rid of the shelter, right? It was a really, there were some like super evangelical Christians who had their own kind of motivation. It was a really weird mix of people. But what was super, I mean, what was amazing out of that is they somehow did work together and their focus was on, we just want to do something different with the street. And because it was very DIY, no one owned any of those properties, no one owned any of those buildings, no one could say, well, you can't do that, right? Because no one really had ownership over those spaces. But through the work and through cleaning the streets and DIY landscaping, and they put in a community garden and they put in like a stage for poetry readings, they said, no, actually, this is our space. We don't own any of the properties, but this is our this is our space. And it was very much a kind of a co- feeling of collective ownership, which was quite which I which was remarkable. Just again, kind of thinking about where people started and what they wanted, what they said they wanted, and then in the end of three years, kind of where they they got to. The unfortunate piece of that is, you know, that they were probably too successful, right? And so there was all kinds of new businesses, local businesses, and local entrepreneurs, community-based entrepreneurs that were opening up businesses. Great, but the city took notice. Right. And so the city started, so I said the city, um, like planners that worked at the city started organizing tours with real estate agents, you know, and developers and use imagery, you know, didn't credit the folks at all. Right. But use photos from the different events on their flyers. And sure enough, a developer came in. Um, initially, the, the group that was, you know, all the volunteers, all the residents were excited. It's like, OK, it's, it's worked. Right. But of course, that meant. And initially, there seemed to be a sense that, oh, this developer will collaborate with us. But of course, at the end of the day, he buys all the buildings and he knocks them all down and he builds, you know, this mixed-use creative development that no one could afford. So that there was a kind of a bitter sting there, of course. Um, but I think, like, if you were if you were reading the story, if you weren't kind of involved with that project, you'd think, oh, well, here's another example, right? The artists come in and then everything gentrifies. But that's not at all, I mean, that's not what happened. Actually, what had built with this community group is that there was a, there was conversations about, okay, you know, community-supported agriculture and, and cooperatives and very non-capitalist, very, you know, a different understanding of what they, of how they could build this community and the kinds of businesses that should be there and that could be there and economic development more on their terms and much more community-driven and much more values-driven. 
it wasn't until the city got involved and brought these developers in, and the city also kind of shut out the community members, didn't invite them to meetings, and it was a lot of backroom deals and backroom conversations. It's like, no, it's the politics, right? And it's the policies behind the scenes, and you know, um, and the pace of change was so quick, it was just too hard to then kind of organize, you know, against that when they thought for a long time that actually the city was on their side, this developer even was on their side. So it's much more, you know, I think, you know, the kind of everyday resistance through arts happens all the time and people are kind of working on the communities. The challenges, of course, is that we're often working within this context of neoliberal development, especially in, in Texas, right? It's all about, you know, private property, private ownership. So that's a challenge. You know, the politics is a challenge. That story could pl have played out very differently, right, depending on the context. I work in housing and I feel defeated almost every day at the lack of acknowledgement around the value of placekeeping and supporting communities in place, particularly with respect to housing stability and preservation. There are a lot of reasons for this that are grounded in the extractivist um, nature of capitalism that, that, that we live in. But I feel that our obsession with growth and attracting investment, particularly in the field of planning and economic development, abstracts our capacity to center people, especially those from underestimated and historically excluded communities. What practices are you seeing being applied and experimented within your community that aim to prioritize or integrate placekeeping and communities in place values? I think this speaks to the the challenge of this work is that people think again, kind of arts and culture is the answer. And it's not. There's I mean, how can kind of an artist solve, right? This kind of, you know, when you think about the long-standing disenfranchisement of people and when we think, you know, I mean, when working in Wisconsin, and I'm sure you know you're familiar with the book Evicted that, that came out and made a splash, you know, a few years ago, focused on Milwaukee and you know, the kinds of housing politics. And this, you know, these are, you know, generational. We think about, you know, the impact of redlining, for example, and how can artists, right, solve that or, or fix that? That's just not, we have to, I guess we have to, right, so that, that's not, a, that's kind of, I think, expecting too much from an artist to come into a community and somehow, you know, figure, you know, figure that out. But I do think it's, you know, being able to kind of amplify those voices and tell those stories that often get kind of silenced and, and marginalized. Right? That's a key piece of it. And you know, some of the work of Yana Norf, I can kind of share some of the work that we've been looking at right down in Houston and kind of thinking about this, this, you know, these neighborhoods that are being threatened by highway expansion. Um, and that these community groups are, you know, are trying to make visible faces and places and memories and memories attached to particular places that may actually already be displaced. So it's like, look, these are, these are, our, this is our history. These are our, our stories, our memories. And if you, you know, um, bulldoze over this and displace all of us, right, that's gone too, right? It's not just the building. It's that, that history that can be drawn upon that's such a source of strength for people. Right. So I think art and culture and, and mapping is, is all part of, kind of making visible those stories and, and that history that um, an outsider, a developer, a politician may not recognize. I mean, at the end of the day, they may not care, right? But it is with stories, compelling stories do help to collectivize and they and in terms of the politics and organizing and getting that message out and building and garnering support. Um, and building, you know, and, and creating coalitions and creating allies and, and seeking out those allies. Storytelling um, is just a, such a key part of that, right? So I think um, making visible often the invisible is a really important part of um, kind of artist work and creatives in this process. But I think too, it's about, you know, we have to think about it so much more holistically, right? What are the kinds of real substantive policies that need to be put in place, whether it's like community land trusts or, you know, organizing to kind of collectivize, right? Um, we hear this, like, in these stories across the country, like mobile home parks that are kind of collectivizing after, you know, these kind of owners that are absentee that are, you know, looking to, to sell off. It's how do we empower people and connect them with the resources to understand the policy tools that are available, funding that potentially is available, 
And I think, you know, certainly artists and creatives can be are certainly part of that organizing, but it's it's policy tools, right? And it's a, it's the politics that has to happen, and it ha we have to think about it holistically. It's food, it's housing, it's energy, it's you know employment, it's entrepreneurship, but of course culture, you know, it underpins all that because people have to feel like they belong, and they have to feel empowered, and they have to feel like um, they're recognized and represented in that kind of decision making and in that work. So I feel like culture, you can think about it as kind of that kind of wraparound supports or that kind of underpinning all that support, but it doesn't, you know, we still need to think about, right, all those different kind of community building blocks that have to be present, that have to be strengthened, that require, you know, just, yeah, attention to all these other different kind of, kind of community capitals, for lack of a better word. It's very interesting, the projects that you mentioned. And I think working with the community members and managing expectations, they are not easy and it's always being challenging. So how, for instance, like in one of your projects, how do you manage these kind of various community goals and motivations while trying to kind of like attempt to earn their trust? Because I think trust is also the most important thing in working with the community. I think starting with kind of a low-hanging project, right? So a project that doesn't have to be based on, it's not like a master plan, it's not a master vision, it's, but just starting with something, we want to do this. We, and so, for example, you know, my class worked with this community on this particular park because everyone cared about that park, right? Whether it's, you know, you're the folks that lived there for, you know, generations to the new families moving in, to young people who just want, you know, this park was an eyesore. And so, you know, focusing on a project that you can garner, you know, pretty kind of widespread support um, and, you know, some low hanging fruit, whether it's just, okay, we're going to paint the shed. So this weekend we're going to paint the shed, <laughs> that's the forming shed. That's again, an eyesore. Um, but we're going to do it in such a way that everyone is going to have a hand. So whether it's, you know, creating a design where everyone gets to contribute something or bring something from home or, you know, something that also, that you can be a kid to, you know, a 90-year-old, right? So finding projects that are really inclusive um, of ability and of age, focus on something that everyone is, that, that it's not too controversial because there's something, and then kind of building from that, right? Really low-hanging fruit and just kind of, okay, so then we did this and we were successful. What do you want to do next, right? And so it's, it's kind of layered. I mean, and also it depends on the community because sometimes actually there is, you know, some... The community structure that's already in place and there's you know people really involved of course with that it can be a little bit exclusionary so how do you open that up to to new participants but i find kind of starting with thinking about projects as opposed to plans i find are, are more successful um and eventually getting to a, a plan just trying to think like you know for that project i mentioned in fort worth i mean yeah it started very small like a block like it started with a vacant lot and then it was a block with some buildings and then it was a building down the street. And then, um, and then it got to a point as a plan, they, they got a grant to have folks come in to help facilitate a charrette process. Um, and they created their own design, right? But that took a couple of years. And I think, again, thinking about where those folks started and how diverse they, you know, their assumptions, their motivations, identities were all quite diverse of where they got to at the end was really interesting and like you know I'm just thinking about another project when I was so I was after finishing my degree in Texas I was a research fellow in England for a couple of years and working um, with artists and technologists and community groups and there was a project that was going to potentially be vulnerable to development and so we worked with a community group kind of anticipate there was some development that was, that was slated for down the road in a couple of years but okay we have to actually start organizing and this was a very diverse neighborhood we had some like kind of you know residents who had been there again for you know years and years and years kind of aging older residents and then you had a lot of newer kind of immigrant families Somalian families and they were kind of chicken jowl also with other kind of uh, kind of ethnic communities, ethnic-based communities around there. And so it's like, okay, well, how do we even start to, to bring these different people together? And so it was, um, so I was there kind of the, the academics to help with kind of facilitating the partnership and also kind of evaluating the process. So it was me and then this community-based group and then this uh, arts group. And they brought in an artist who kind of facilitated a, um, 
twice hosted workshops. And so based, so, so creating kind of posters about things going on in the neighborhood. And it was women only, um, women identifying only, um, thinking about kind of some of the cultural expectations on gender, we thought actually creating kind of a safe space for women identifying themselves only would be appropriate in this context. So you had these women, again, just like this wild range of women you probably never like met, I know they've never met before, um, working to one kind of the artist um, led us through this process of finding first your own font. Like, so she does like a, a lot of print work and like big billboards and, you know, with these statements, you know, very powerful political statements. And so she's all about fonts and typefaces and, you know, kind of print art. And so we all kind of found our own font. Like we all created our own kind of typescript. And then, you know, she led us through this process to focus on, okay, what is it about the community that we're really, you know, um, upset about or, you know, want to say something about? And it ranged from housing, housing as a right, to, you know, these, um, some of the older ladies talk about these lifer lads that, you know, were on their bicycles and like would be like almost mowing them over as they're trying to cross the streets. And then, you know, air quality and pollution issues and littering and, you know, kind of basic stuff, basic community stuff. But what was really cool is that we all made our posters and then we went out and posted it all over the community, all over the neighborhood. So, you know, taking folks through this process, which, and then in helping each other, like posting them up, which felt kind of like, ooh, are we allowed to do this, right? This seems quite transgressive. But it was a, you know, it was an amazing process of individually kind of being able to find your voice and find what matters to you. And of course, this whole process talking, you know, we're all sitting around this table, collaging and making our prints, sharing stories, learning about each other, talking about our experience in the neighborhood, you know, your, your history of that neighborhood. And so you have relationships that are just because you're creating this thing, you're creating this, you know, this poster that you're about to put up and then going out and doing that together. It, you know, by the end of it, it's like everyone, are, we're a group. We're maybe not friends yet, but kind of feel like friends. You know, it would be folks that if you would see in the grocery store or the cafe or at the bus stop, you're like, oh my gosh, how's it going? You know, so it's, I think these kinds of projects, when it's, again, just a little project that slows us down and gets us to do something that kind of pushes us outside our comfort zone, um, and we're doing it together, and so we all feel a bit vulnerable, we all feel a bit nervous about it, but we're doing it together. There's just something that, yeah, relationships come out of that. Um, of course, there's food, right? So always having a meal that we share, you know, always helps as well, and so yeah, I think facilitating a process like that, I mean, as simple as it sounds, it, yeah, it's just, it's quite a powerful experience. And to do that collectively with others, um, suddenly they had a core group of people that were interested in, in doing more, right, with this group and interested in, it, you know, coming to that meeting about this new development and whatnot. And they knew people and they knew very different people. But yeah, something very low-hanging, project-based, Again, you need a good facilitator, though. Yeah, and, a, and some kind of process that kind of slows things down, that is co-creative. It's amazing, right? The kinds of relationships that can form out of that. I'm laughing and nodding while you're speaking because I can totally relate to that, right? And, and it's often from like the very simple questions that we ask in life, then we get to build like a shared understanding and then later then, you know, a segue to thinking about deeper and more overwhelming questions together. That I just wanted to comment on that. Amal, did you have another question for Nicole? As planners and economic development practitioners and researchers, we're notorious for going to communities when we need something. And oftentimes the accountability loop is fractured um, once we get what it is that we were aiming to to get out of the engagement. How do you mitigate this issue and sustain the connections and relationships you develop with those that you're working with? Yeah, so I think my experience in Bristol was really powerful for me as an academic, as a researcher, because, you know, we're kind of trained, you know, um, we define impact by our publications, right? So, and research and data, it's, there's not a whole lot of thought or conversation about how extractive that process is, especially when you're working. I mean, hey, if you're doing research on, you know, billionaires, fine. Like we can take as much time as we want interviewing them. 
But if you're, you know, interviewing and working with folks who are already like working multiple jobs or single parents or, you know, already juggling a lot, that's problematic, right? We have to really think about that. Um, and I know some, sometimes, right, we can't always pay our participants. I mean, there's all kinds of ways we can think about how we compensate folks for their time, you know, when that time in some ways is much more valuable, you know, and, and much more of a hardship to participate in those projects. So I think, again, just going back to how do we tap into our institutional resources to support folks in that process, whether it is, you know, paying them or um, compensating them in some way. I think going back to, to any project that I'm involved in now, so, so yeah, let me just go back to my work in Bristol. So I was part of, so I was um, housed in what was called the Pervasive Media Studio. So it wasn't, it was kind of sponsored by my university, but it was not, it was actually a space in an art center, right? And it was a space that would have residents. And again, people could apply and if they were accepted, they would have the space for free to, to work on their projects. So it's mostly it was artists, it was technologists, and it was researchers. And the idea of, you know, folks are working together and collaborating, sharing ideas, amazing things will come out of that. Um, and so it's kind of a free, you know, you have to apply, but it's basically a free space to work on your projects and to get ideas. And I remember going to, you know, it was like probably my first week there. And I'm a research fellow, so we're tied to this project. And they're talking about evaluation. They're talking about, you know, how we're going to evaluate this program that we're working on. And of course, as a, you know, fresh out of my freshly minted PhD, I'm talking about numbers, I'm talking about, you know, all these kind of evaluation, kind of more research methodology, right? And I remember the director of this art center just aghast and was just like, no, wait, no, no, it's not about numbers, it's about stories, it's about, you know, and I thought, okay, I'm in a new place. This is a different kind of place, right? And I got to rethink, like, you know, how my identity and my approach and my you know, and, and my practice here in the space. And, you know, it was a, it was an amazing experience because every project, you know, it never was kind of the academics coming in to evaluate or do this research. It was, okay, we as academics are going to work with you as this art center, these artists, and we're going to kind of create a project together. What do we want to do? What, what do we all want to get out of this? And so part of that process and, and the evaluation also has to be collaborative. Right. So it's not us saying, okay, we're going to research this and try to, you know, find out the impact of this on this. Maybe if that works within the confines of the project, but we certainly cannot dictate what we're going to do. Right. It has to be collaboratively, you know, figured out. So we kind of worked on a methodological workshop where we would, you know, work with with these teams and say, okay, so um, it was kind of part partnership building, part um, let's map our values. What are our shared values? What do those values look like in practice? Uh, if we were, you know, to really um, live out this value, what would that look like in terms of the project? And that's where we start, just to make sure that everyone felt that everyone's values were collectively represented in the project, and that is what drove the desired impact. And that's what drove the research questions and the kinds of data that we would collect and how we would collect it. It had, everything had to have impact and value for the participants. And so that's kind of how I start my projects now. It's not, oh, I have a research question. I might have some ideas of what I want to explore, but it's about, you know, through those relationships with community members or through artists, okay, what do we, what are we excited about together? What do we want to work on together? And, you know, if I can kind of build, you know, okay, so I have these research questions. Oh, I have these really, these interests too. What, let's, let's kind of, you know, cook something up together. And so starting that process on the ground floor with, you know, with research partners, it's not just our kind of subjects or participants, but these are our research partners, our research collaborators. And what are we going to build together? What are those questions? What are our methodologies? So it's, you know, and I will say, like, I recently published a paper on this process, and certainly some of the feedback was, oh, you are, you are not objective enough, you're not neutral enough, you know, you're, but I, you know, we're never neutral, we're never totally objective, right, and so I feel ethically, I feel much, I, maybe it's not pure research, but I don't care, like, our research should have impact in the world and do good in the world, and I think, and not be extractive, 
So I will gladly claim my, you know, subjectivity and my bias in these projects if it means they're actually the research goal to me, you know, for me, in, in my perspective, more of a chance of having an impact. I just can't do pure research anymore. Well, speaking of excitement, what are you most excited about these days? Oh, well, so what's been super cool. Um, so yeah, so despite, you know, my theater beginnings, you know, finishing the PhD research fellow, I've been doing research and teaching. I say that with like, I should say that with um, that tone. It's been great, right? It's been great, but I have missed being creative myself. So I recently directed a play at our community theater and we just finished on Sunday. And I, so seven weeks with this amazing group of people and all these volunteers and, you know, um, helping backstage and building sets and painting sets and like, it was a beautiful story and like people are crying at the end and laughing and you know to create that kind of experience for our community with this group of people that was just you know phenomenal like okay I gotta bring more I gotta not just you know study and research this stuff I gotta continue doing this stuff so that was really awesome so doing that work here so I so just kind of going back to the introduction I'm I live in Ashland Wisconsin it's a rural community. We have about 8,000 people on the you know, shores of Lake Superior. Our, the closest city is Duluth, about 80,000 people. So we're kind of out there. That's, you know, about an hour and a half away. And I think, you know, all the research I've done on kind of arts and creative economy has such an urban focus. And so I'm living here, I'm thinking, why the heck are all these like really amazing, creative, talented people living here it's not easy to live here right because um you know just weather wise we get you know massive amounts of snow and it's freezing cold you know pay is really low everyone does this kind of more on a volunteer and hobby basis like why are people here and doing all this work you know this kind of sharing their talents in this way um and so i'm i'm excited to tell a different kind of story around you know creative communities and what that looks like in a more rural part of the world because you just don't see that, you know, talked about in the research and all the policies are so focused on, you know, kind of urban centers and innovation. And that's not, that's totally not the driving force here. And so thinking about what lessons can I draw from this part of the world and, you know, what does that mean to kind of rethink cultural policy, creative economy policy that is more values driven, that is more about that social and cultural value and, and not to say that it doesn't have anything to do with economic development. Of course, people should be able to thrive and should be able to have the resources that they need to live good lives, right? But kind of rethinking that calculus, um, rethinking what that actually means, because up here, like the quality of life, you know, there isn't a lot of money. It's a really high quality of life and it's this amazing community. So being able to kind of use this region, you know, this area to kind of tell a different story about creative communities that are alive and well, um, in rural parts of the world, despite the fact, you know, that they don't show, if you do any kind of data analysis using census or kind of industry data, occupational data, it says that we have zero creativity up here, right? Because there's no, you know, there's no real jobs, despite the fact that it's richly creative and incredibly talented. And again, how do you make the invisible visible? So I'm excited about kind of making that invisible creativity visible and then what does that mean in terms of what really matters in terms of quality of life and communities? And I think non-traditional ways of data and, and doing research is, is so big in, in being able to tell such stories of, of things that are happening, of life that is being created in, in non-urban settings. That is, those are communities are overlooked again and again. So it's, yeah, it's, it's really exciting to, to hear about your excitement. We've covered quite a bit, but I wanted to make sure that there wasn't anything that was on your mind that we missed that you would like to highlight. That's been super fun chatting with you all. <laughs> it has been fun for us as well. We're, we're so, again, like so appreciative of, of, of the opportunity to connect with you and, and you sharing your time and stories with us from, from your work. Of course, like I said, I probably could, yeah, I can talk about this for hours. So I'm, I feel like I've talked way too much, but no, it's been great to, to share and just kind of reflect on, yeah, just to say that, you know, often planners think about, they think about art and culture being as, as like the answer, 
right? The answer is culture. Your answer is art. And no, like, I mean, in some ways, yes, because we all, culture is about, yeah, shared meaning and shared understanding. So yes, in a sense, like that is what it should be all about, but they don't mean it that way. You know, they mean it in terms of, say, plug in art, you know, add art and stir and somehow we'll get better outcomes and we'll, you know, revitalize this community. And just to say it's, it's part of the puzzle. It's, it's part of the glue, perhaps, that kind of connects people or it's, yeah, it's just, um, it's never, quote, unquote, the answer. It should never be the answer, but just always just kind of, it's just part of our kind of shared human experience. Right? And so how do we create opportunities to connect and to share our stories and share our experiences in ways, yeah, to help people feel like, yes, I belong. Um, going back to the whole, kind of the placekeeping aspect of this work that, you know, kind of unearthing those stories and, yeah, creating that sense of belonging and, and actually attention on what actually really matters and what, you know, what really sh we should be striving for. And it's, you know, communities where people can thrive and can be creative and, and have these, you know, transformative self-actualizing experiences that I think does have a drawing culture, but of course, housing, energy, food, right? All these other systems, we have to think about it holistically, right? Part of this kind of broader ecosystem of what's needed, but so culture is never the answer, but it's always necessary. Thank you so much again um, for sharing your experience and expertise with us. And it's been really, really great conversation. Remember, together we can make a difference and create sustainable, equitable, and thriving communities for all. Thanks for listening. And until next time, this is Eka Permanasari, Dian Nostikasari, and Amal Bare signing off. Mm -hmm.